Welcome to the Intentional Encourager podcast, where each episode brings you compelling conversations and stories designed to entertain, enlighten, and encourage. And now here's your host, Brian Sexton. And welcome into the Intentional Encourager podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sexton. Thank you for joining us again today. And it's rare when we get a number one best-selling author. It's even rarer when that number one best-selling author is a pastor. And it's even rarer when you go longer praying before the podcast than you do probably actually recording it. But we're going to have a good time today, and you are going to be encouraged. You're going to be inspired, and you are going to be touched by the story of Matthew Dibler. D-E-I-B-L-E-R. You can find him on LinkedIn at Matthew, M-A-T-T-H-E-W, Dibler, D-I-D-E-I-B-L-E-R, D-E-I-B-L-E-R. He is a, a minister. He, he, he has the Lamp on the Stand Motivational Ministry, the Delivering Dunamis podcast. He is a mental health coach, sales coach. What what else more are you doing, Matthew Dibler? And you have found time to be on the Intentional Encourager <laughs> podcast. Welcome in. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here and to uh, to connect with you, Brian. I mean, you're just such a, a wonderful light in my life, and it's a blessing to be here to share my story. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and it's not like you don't have a hundred thousand things going on right now, and you and you carved out time today to be on the podcast with us. And I'm grateful that you have come on the podcast. I, I want to go here to start yeah. our conversation. Yeah. You're down in the Chapel Hill, North Carolina area. I love that area. Although my yeah. son is a rabid Duke fan. Oh, yeah, he's a crazy Duke fan. We'll, we'll work on him a little well, bit. Well, <laughs> you know, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll share this with you. So about seven, yeah, about seven, six, seven years ago, I went to a, a UNC basketball game. They, they played the University of Maryland, and it was uh -huh. Maryland's last game in the ACC. And, and I had a, a customer at that time. I was a, a regional sales manager in North Carolina was my territory, and Yep. I had a customer that said, Hey, I'm a, uh, I'm a really big UNC fan. I said, well, well, I'll take you to a game. We'll go to a game. And sure. so we ate a little Japan, I think it was a little Japanese place in, 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 uh, at the mall there, the little tiny mall there in Chapel Uni Hill. University mall. Probably. Yeah. We ate, yeah. we ate a little, yeah. little Japanese place at the university mall. And then we bust over yep. to, the, to yep. the Dean dome and, and, I was like, man, this is pretty cool. This is, and we sat at the top of the Dean Dome and, and, and the way that, and it's beautiful, the way they built it 30, that, that facility opened 35 years ago. It opened in 1986. Yep. And the way they built it, they built it into the ground so that even mm -hmm. the top level seats were just, and that's the way a lot of arenas, a lot of modern arenas are built today. But you think of Chapel Hill, and really, the 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 only thing in Chapel Hill is the University of North Carolina. Yeah, you're that right. little <laughs> University Mall is a small place. How are <laughs> folks dealing with COVID nineteen in Chapel Hill? Because I know what we're doing here in West Virginia. I traveled yeah. through North Carolina. I traveled to the coast um, last year, last July, with my family. So I went through the Raleigh area, kind of around Chapel Hill. 
But yeah. how are folks in your area in the triad, what they call the triad, Chapel yeah. Hill, Durham, Raleigh, how are folks dealing with the pandemic down there and how have they dealt with it the last year? Yeah, I mean, I think it's been a pretty careful approach around here. We are a university town and the medical community is very strong in this area. So there's a lot of, you know, research and, and science-based, um, you know, information available to the population nearby. And so I think that's been helpful. I think everybody's taken it very seriously. Um, you know, we've all had to adapt. I have a children and you know a lot of the things that we like to do prior to the pandemic are just not available to us anymore um you know story time at the library the little tumble gym that we used to go to uh some of the children's museums just are not open you um, guys have one but, of the greatest facilities on the planet and i'm gonna yeah. throw this out here to yeah. you yeah frankie's fun park Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. It is one of the greatest. It's, if you are in the greater Raleigh, Chapel <laughs> Hill area, down around um, down around the Apex area. Yeah. You've got. Right near the airport. Yeah. Right near the. Exactly. Right near the airport. If mm -hmm. you ever go to that area, mm -hmm. Frankie's Fun Park is is your destination place and and listen if anybody from frankie's fun park is listening you can get me at the intentional encourager podcast at gmail.com <laughs> or i'm sorry intentional encourager podcast at gmail.com we'd love to get some frankie swag or something absolutely like that. but no it's it is an amazing it's an amazing you got go-karts and you've got video games and yeah but, but you know the, I, I wanted to jump in there matthew because you were talking about your 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 kids yeah. And and we were all used to doing yeah. all those things. And your area, especially in that Raleigh, Chapel Hill, Durham mm -hmm. area, there is a ton of things to do. Yeah. No matter all year year round, there's just yeah. a ton of things to do. And 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 I'm sure your kids were impacted by that. Let oh, me totally. ask you this. Mm -hmm. Folks that you ministered to mm -hmm. that, that you've been working with and things like that. Yeah. What's been a common theme that they've shared with you around the last year? Well, you know, I think one of the most powerful things is that people have really had the opportunity to, uh, you know, create more of a space for clarity in this season. I think it's allowed people to kind of slow down and, you know, kind of understand what their priorities really are in life and where they want to focus their time, their energy, their attention. I think it's allowed people to, you know, many are working from home still to this very day. And so it's created more opportunity for family time. And, you know, with a lot of those outlets that we used to utilize that are now restricted, you know, we're forced to create more time with family to do things that, you know, maybe we neglected in the past. And I think that's really special. I think that this, you know, from a lot of people I've spoken to, and I know that, hey, there have been many, many hard times. People have lost employment and, you know, people are really searching for meaning in their life. But I think out of that search for meaning, there's come a great revival. And that's been extraordinarily encouraging for me to hear because I think God is doing amazing work in this time. And I think he's recentering our focus where it needs to be on the family, on, you know, a life of purpose and really creating space for that to all 
unfold because sometimes, you know, in the past, pre-COVID, we could really get caught up in the busyness of life and all of those distractions around us. And I think this has really created a space for us to, to find clarity and really seek his will. Well, and Matthew, here's the thing too. A lot of folks, and I'm and, and trust me, I am not demeaning or downgrading this at all. Okay. Mm-hmm. But I will say this. Growing up for me, the church, the churches that I went to were more focused on the worship experience, you know, Sunday mm-hmm. morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Right. We weren't really at church a lot in those off nights. Mm-hmm. Now the church has been really seven days a week. You could go to church and there's this group on Monday and there's this group on Tuesday and there's this group on Wednesday and there's this group on Thursday and Friday. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying that, but I love the point that you just made there. I think Mm -hmm. it's a powerful point. I think we had to, especially as Christians, you and I are Christians. Mm Mm-hmm. We had to recenter what those priorities were because you mentioned the busyness of life. Mm -hmm. You can go through life and, and our pastor has talked to us about this in ministry. Yeah. He has told us, he said, guys and gals, let me, let me share this with you. You can gain the whole world, but if you lose your family, you've lost everything. Amen. And so a lot of times, especially you can get, you were talking about the busyness of life. Yep. I think God, what I saw God doing was recentering mm-hmm. that and saying, okay, listen, the purpose of the church is to come and worship. Mm-hmm. The purpose of the church is to, because the Bible says not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together, to Amen. come together as a body of believers and, and worship together. And so I love what you said there. Talk to me about what's, if you don't mind me asking. Sure. What's been going on inside of your family and how have you guys Mm -hmm. as a family done things differently? And what's the lesson you have learned within your family around the things you've experienced last year? Boy, it's been, uh, it's been an amazing 12 months and I say amazing, but it's also been you know, stressful and taxing at times as well. Like I said, I have two little children. So my son is three and a half years old. My daughter is, is one and a half. So she was born in October of, uh, 2019 and we didn't have a lot of time with her, you know, um, in the age where she could, you know, kind of get around and, and start exploring some new places before COVID set in. And then, my wife has been a stay-at-home mother for the last about four years. She was a school teacher prior to that. God I've bless always... you, man. God bless you. You've got <laughs> two you. small children. I can imagine if you're watching this on YouTube. Yeah. I can imagine Matthew having a full head of hair before having two small <laughs> children. Yeah, I, I am just thankful that that when my wife and I had our son twenty almost 21 years ago, that the first couple of years that all my hair didn't leave because, oh, of, you know, yeah. raising. So God bless you, man. You've got, you have, <laughs> you have kids back to back. 
you know. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, part of this is a result of kind of the COVID cut, you know, so. Um, there you go, man. Yeah. I, I, I started, just get what you get. You find what you find. And yeah, go you know, I, yeah. I got the razor and I just cleaned it up and I figured low maintenance. I don't have to worry about a haircut. And so it's kind of stuck with me. But yeah, it's been a. But it's your been... beard is on point, and that's that's <laughs> the you. important thing. Thank man. you. Yes, we keep that <laughs> well maintained. <laughs> so it was uh it's been a transformational season in that, you know, we've had to adapt as a family. We don't have a lot of the outlets that we did before. Thankfully, my wife, um, in kind of the small community that we live in, has made some connections. We've been able, we've spent a lot of time outside, and I think that's actually been quite fulfilling, getting my children outside least when the weather is is favorable and you know we're coming out of the winter time now so we're looking forward to doing more of that but we go to parks we go to playgrounds we take walks um and you know that time has really been special getting away from a lot of the other distractions of life stepping away from kind of the chaos that's in the media and all of the things that are going around us that can really have a negative uh impact on us you know when you're out in the wilderness kind of spending time with family you really can be at peace. And so that's been beautiful. There's been so much that has happened and we'll get into kind of the backstory of sure. my transformation later. Um, but it's, it's put a lot on the shoulders of my wife because I've taken on a whole lot of new stuff over the last 12 months. And I'm just thankful for her willingness to go where God is leading us. Uh, you know, for me, it, I didn't necessarily expect to be on this path either. I'm just truly stepping forward in faith. And it's remarkable, uh, the love of my spouse who has been able to kind of endure this journey with me. Some days it's extraordinarily beautiful. Other days it's, it's very stressful and overwhelming. Um, but we live it together. And I think it's developed a closeness within our family that is, um, is truly special. Let me ask you this. You mentioned just a moment ago that you, you and your family spend a lot of time outside mm -hmm. in, in that time outside mm -hmm. that you guys have, have done as a family, what have you learned about God and your walk with the Lord seeing oh. in, 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 in being, because again, I have something full disclosure mm -hmm. where we're recording here. Mm-hmm is about 150 feet from my back door. We have a, we have a separate detached building, carpeted, things like that. It used to be yeah. our master bedroom in our mm -hmm. single wide trailer. We just moved it out here and I work out here and we store stuff and record podcasts and things like that. But it, but when I, when I leave my back door, it faces a hillside. Mm -hmm. And so I caught myself a couple of years ago reciting Psalm 121, I will lift up mine eyes into the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord, which maketh the heavens and the earth. Amen. Because I look at that hillside and think, okay, that, that inspires me. And yeah. it, it causes me to think about that. When yeah. you, when you look at, and, and you spend time outside and things like that, what does it speak to you about your walk with the Lord and the, and the nature of your walk with the Lord? Boy, you know, it's been powerful. And, and again, we'll get into more of this story later. But when I really began seeking God um, and he, trying to hear his voice and really empower it at the beginning of 2020, when I was really, really going to trying to go deeper in my faith, I actually decided to start 
uh, rising much earlier in the morning. You know, I wanted to beat the sun and I wanted to get out there and create a space. Now this is separate from my wife and my kids, but it was kind of my alone time with him where I would go into prayer and reflection. I, I praise him. And I started actually exercising at that time of the day too. And I'll tell you one of the things in nature that I've really enjoyed, cause I would spend that time really out in, in the parks, in the wilderness. And, um, it was so amazing that transition from darkness to light every day, you know, seeing the world wake up, experiencing his creation. It felt like this opportunity to be born again in that environment. I mean, I truly felt the presence of God and this victory over the darkness. And I began to try and embody that in my life. And that was truly where my story was revealed. So that was a really powerful experience, you know, outside. Now with my children, I think it's just so fulfilling to see them enjoy the purity of God's perfect creation. You know, when you get out into nature, you see things really as God intended them to be. Um, they're not contaminated by the world. I mean, they are to a certain degree, but, you know, when you look at the trees and, and the flowers and um, you, you smell that fresh air and you breathe it in about that, that is just so amazing because it's sort of like you're, you're on this deeper, more intimate level of connection with God. And I can see the joy in my kids when they're in that environment. And it makes me feel so much closer to him being yeah. in that space. So I, I pray that the same is true for them. I mean, they're, they're obviously very young. We talk about Jesus all the time. Um, and I just pray that they are feeling that type of spiritual connection in those environments as well. Cause it's been so transformational for me. Well, listen, in, in full disclosure, where mm -hmm. you live, you can see a lot of those, the natural beauties and things like that. Yep. When, where I live, when I look around in nature and I see the cars on the cinder blocks and, mm -hmm. and I see the weeds growing up in the people's yards and, and, yeah. and rusted out boats and in people's yard living in Appalachia, yeah. you know, it's like the, the, the Creek in the backyard that has the, this, the, uh, the tires in it, you know, uh, somebody yeah. is, yeah. <laughs> that's, just, un that's unfortunate. Yeah, I'm that's just messing with you, man. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> messing with you, man. Cause it's, you know, it's a difference between North Carolina and West Virginia. It's why a lot of people move from here to there is because they, they want to see that that incredible beauty of that state. No, man, I had to, we are I, blessed. Yeah. In that regard, you the guys are I'll, incredibly blessed. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. The one thing I will say is this area is just booming with growth right now. And like, that's one of the sad things in the community where I live, you know, just right out my window, really, they're clearing more land to, to build. And you know, that's, that's good. I'm not, I'm not against the, the community growing, but, you know, you see a lot of trees come down and, and some of that wilderness space that you enjoyed in the past is just, you no longer have access to it. So yeah, I don't you know how long it'll be from this. Harris Teeter. I mean, you got Harris <laughs> Teeter, you know, that for yeah. us, that would be like heaven here in West Virginia. It, like it is. It's could, a luxury. Yeah. 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 If we could go down the street and find a Harris Teeter, we, we have a Kroger, but it's about 10 minutes away. And, yeah. and, but, but, you know, I mean, that's what I love. My wife, you know, the first couple of times she traveled with me down there to mm -hmm. North Carolina, 
she was like, I love it down here. The people are nice. And she's like, they have so much more stuff than we do. And I'm like, that's, (laughs) yeah, that's the point. You know, you can, you can go, you know, and my son's like, yeah, they got two or three PF Changs, which he likes PF Changs. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. Uh, Kung Pao chicken, baby. Ah, (laughs) yes, 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 yes. (laughs) Hey, let's step aside and take a break. We'll be back in a moment. And when we come back, I want to talk about Matthew's new book, The Devil and the Children of God at the End of the World. So we're going to talk about that in just a moment here on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Hey, everybody. Brian Sexton here. I want to tell you about our sponsor, SEO National. SEO stands for Search Engine Optimization. Now, what's that, you might say? Well, Search Engine Optimization helps you show up higher on search engines in front of paying customers for words that you as a business owner can monetize. What a great concept. SEO National is owned by my good buddy, Damon Burton, who's been a guest here on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Not only has Damon and his team worked with businesses of all sizes, from e-commerce startups to NBA teams and Shark Tank featured businesses, but more importantly, Damon and his team are about transparency, trust, and providing lifetime value. So much so that he still has his first customers after opening SEO National 14 years ago. Let me give you some intentional encouragement and call Damon and his team today at 855-736-6285 or go to www.seonational.com and get a free quote. Matthew, let's get into the book. Um, You have got a, a new book that is just released as we're recording it, it just released yeah. this week. Congratulations from one author to another. My book, my book did not go number one on Amazon. It went like number 1,330,000. Oh. So, you know, we, if, if someone out there is listening and you'll buy people buy from people, you know, if you listen to this podcast, you'll get us up to 1,210,000 uh, on the bestseller list. <laughs> we, we might be able to catch Matthew in it, but no, seriously, congratulations on the new book, The Devil and the Children of God at the End of the World. I wanted to Thank ask you, you. Thank you. I don't want to ask you where the inspiration came from because that's a, <clears throat> that's a duh question. Let me ask you this. Yeah. What surprised you most when you thought of the title? to the book because everybody has those moments. I know for me, when I wrote people buy from people, it came, it came from a phrase that my dad told me 25 years ago. And I thought, well, I'm going to write a sales book. Yeah. Turned out not to be a sales book. What was the most surprising thing as you got into thinking about the title and how you're going to lay the book out? What was that aha moment for you? Like, this is where it's going. Yeah. Well, I mean, I knew the story and I knew the encounters that I had lived in my life. So I had two direct encounters with Satan. So, um, but I wanted the story to not, I wanted it to be a message of love and hope because that's truly my testimony that that was God's enduring love is, is what shines through in this work. There are some very dark elements to the experiences that I had throughout my life, but I wanted God's love to, you know, shine through. And so when I actually first, I, I wrote the book, let me say that without a title. And it was weird to get to the end of it and not have one. And I was actually praying, you know, for God to make it very clear, you know, how, how do you want me to title this work? Cause I don't have the title. And I thought that the title was actually going to be no child left behind. 
So I believe that potentially we are nearing, you know, the end times and God's love for us is meant to prevail. His victory is secured. And so he's calling his children home and yeah. no child left behind just felt like it might be right. But then there's, you know, there's no child left behind laws. And so I didn't want to, you know, make it confusing to somebody who was potentially researching the book. And so I started, you know, I, I had actually aligned with my publisher at that point, and we were brainstorming some ideas. And she threw a couple at me, and it was actually the, the very first one that came out of her mouth was the devil and the children of God at the end of the world. And it just, at first, I was kind of like, nah, you know, that's, it feels a little, you know, intense. I, I don't yeah. know if that, and and then as it, as I tried to, you know, con consume it and really feel into it, I started to have a piece with it. And I just knew like that it was the one it, it was remarkable because I expected that we were going to have several calls. Like she was going to throw some ideas my way. I, you know, kind of think through them, throw some alternatives back at her, you know, that would be a back and forth process for a period of time, but it was actually the first thing that came out of her mouth. And at first when I heard it, I thought, mm, maybe not. And then it just, I had this assurance come over me that it was, it was God saying like, th this is the title, like, don't hesitate. And that's how it was with the book cover too, which uh, if you're on YouTube and you're listening to this, you can kind of see it in the background there. What happened was um, my publisher had asked me, do you have kind of any ideas for what you want the creative of the cover to look like. And I, I said, well, I can throw some things together. And so I went into Canva and I started playing with some things. And so actually the very first, you know, sample design that I came up with was this image, which has been dressed up a little, um, yeah. but I, I gave those to them for reference um, so that they could create their own designs. And they came back with a number. And one of them that they really liked was this one. And it was like, they sent me back four or five and said, what do you think? And I was just like, you know what? I just, I feel like this is it. And it, it like, again, God made it easy. It was so simple to know that this was the direction I had to go. And it was the first thing that came out, right? It was, it's just remarkable how he works. Hey, listen, at least you had someone that, that gave you a great title to a book. My wife suggested the title of my book should be, why are you the way you are? <laughs> you know, <laughs> You know, it's like, you know, or why are you writing a book? You know, it's, it's yeah. that, that would have been, that would have been the the title, but no, it, no, it's, and again, the process for those that have not been through the process, I had yeah. been through it. Uh, I hadn't been through it. You and I were talking, this is your first time through the process. Yeah. Yeah. You don't understand that it, it, it consumes you. It's like, and oh, I, I goodness, was reading yeah. through my book and I'm like, oh, I wish I had said this or I wish I had mm -hmm. done that or I wish mm -hmm. I, you know, and, and of course, but you also, the moment that, and I can remember, you know, it was a Saturday morning for me, I get the email that UPS is delivering books mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm just like pacing, like, when are they going to get here? And I, I literally, <laughs> I heard the guy pull up in the driveway and I'm like, I just run outside. I'm like, I, I, you just, that moment is overwhelming when you open the box and there's your book. Oh, like it's, it's, a, it's a finished product for you. Let me ask you this. What was the hardest thing for you 
to get past in writing this book because you, you talk mm. about the things that happened to you. Yeah. I was talking about my late father mm -hmm. in this book and sharing stories about his life mm -hmm. and things like that. Yeah. So for me, at times it became emotional because I missed my dad. For you, yeah. did what what was the emotions that you had to overcome? Because when you write something really personal, and I don't mean mm -hmm. to ask a long-winded question, but no, when no, you no, write something question. really personal, mm -hmm. there are times that you have to beat back the emotions. Otherwise, you would have to stop for – I would have to stop for 15 or 20 minutes to gather myself. Yep. Because the emotions, I'm like, but I've got to power through this. I want to get this done and, and write it and do it yep. justice and things like that. What were some emotions that you had to overcome in writing this book? Well, I'll tell you. So uh, I started blogging actually back in 2011, and that's when I really began sharing my mental health journey very transparently. And that was, you know, following my rebirth in faith. And I felt God was leading me to that. I wasn't overly comfortable in sharing at first. You know, it actually gave me quite a bit of anxiety, and there was a lot of emotion um, attached to it. I had to process a lot of trauma that I really hadn't spoken of previously in my life, and I was making it very public. And I remember as I did that, I would often, you know, sit at the computer and I would shake as I was typing. But then, you know, a little while after, once I kind of published the blog, I would feel this, you know, just sense of peace wash over me. It was like I had released all that weight that I had been carrying for many years. So Matthew, I, I gotta jump. Of, Matthew, I gotta jump yeah, in here. Go I, 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 I gotta jump in here. Yeah. You, you, you start the blog in 2011. Yeah. You're writing about it. Mm -hmm. How long did you run from writing a book? Because I can, mm -hmm. I can sense mm -hmm. that that it was like, and and for those of you that know the biblical story of Jonah, God calls him to the to the nation of Nineveh, mm -hmm. or to the to the city of Nineveh. I should say, not the nation, but the city of Nineveh. Yeah. And Jonah, because he runs from it, famously ends up in the belly of a great fish for three yep. days. The Bible yep. calls it a great fish. And so, you know, we have those moments where we, we're supposed to do something and we continue to run. How long did you run from yeah. writing the book? Great question. So um, after I blogged for about a year and a half, I had a lot. I mean, I had my whole story almost complete, right? At least in the life that I'd led up to that point. And I thought, well, this is a book. And I, I was motivated by God. I felt his call on my life. I knew that he was leading me to a purpose that was far beyond just me, you know, putting my story out there. I knew it was impacting the lives of people in a positive way. And that was glorifying his kingdom. So I went down the path. I wrote a 32-page manuscript proposal. I, I aligned with a publisher. That all happened in around 2013. And then I got overwhelmed. Um, you know, the magnitude of the book project, it was like I had the complete outline there and I had most of the, the, the content done. I just had to, you know, kind of form it, mold it into a book, but I was just overwhelmed by my nine to five work, all the other things going on in life. I was experiencing some newfound freedom. Um, I was, cause prior to that point, prior to my spiritual rebirth, I was living in great captivity and agoraphobia. And so I was just kind of, you know, enjoying life and, and I made every excuse possible to not, you know, do the work, uh, finish the book. And that's when I drifted, you know, away from God and, and kind of into the temptations of my flesh. And from there forward, uh, you know, I, I decided um, pursuing my own interests was more important than pursuing God's will. And I set the book aside with the expectation that I would get back to it at some point. 
but I, I abandoned the project and it took me, you know, six, seven years, actually almost eight now to, um, you know, bring it to like a front of line priority once more. And that was really God's intervention at that point. Um, cause I was sort of in a sense waiting to mature, uh, spiritually enough to, yeah. you know, follow this call. And when he called this time, I just decided, you know what, I'm not hesitating anymore. I'm just going forward. I knew that the book wasn't going to look anything like it had seven or eight year, you know, years prior because I had had so much life experience since that time. And I had had this, um, direct encounter with evil again. And, and so I just, uh, opened up a word document and started typing. I had no outline, nothing. And that's, that's how it began. What would you go back and tell if you could, what would you go back and tell 2013 Matthew who writes mm. this, you know, you're, you're sitting here in, as we record this, it's March of 2021 the yeah. book is out. It's done. It's, it's released. It's done very well. Yeah. What would you go back if you could and tell 2013 Matthew to encourage him about the process of, of moving forward with it? Cause you mentioned you got overwhelmed and, and mm -hmm. a couple of other things happened. What kind of intentional encouragement would you give yeah. 2013 Matthew from 2021 Matthew? Yeah, I would, I would tell 2013 Matthew that, you know, don't hesitate in the open door. Um, when God calls you to something, you don't have to perceive in your natural mind exactly how everything is going to come to fruition. You know, you just really have to empower his strength. You've got to draw on that because really, and I'll say this today, you know, I didn't write the book. God gave me the strength, his voice through me and allowed me to, you know, make this work a reality. And I think that's what I would tell the 2013 version of myself is that it wasn't meant to be done, you know, just in your strength. You maybe don't have the, the resources um, in your natural mind, in your flesh to do it, but God has more than enough power. You know, he's, he's got everything that you need. It's an unlimited supply of fuel for you. And if you just step forward, if you just start, you know, start telling the story. It doesn't have to be perfect, right? You're going to go through an editing process and you're going to go back and rework the thing probably several times, but get the rough draft out. Just tell the story, you know, allow it to just kind of flow naturally as though you were writing a blog and, you know, just get it on paper and then decide exactly how you want to frame everything up. How do you want to, you know, create the chapter separations and everything else? Um, it's truly what I've learned is that if I step forward in faith, you know, every day, just one little step at a time, he usually reveals the next, you know, uh, phase to me. And I don't have to figure it all out in my natural mind. I really can't. If I just allow him to do his work and if I get out of the way, then amazing things come together. And, you know, miraculously, you see a book come to completion in a relatively short time frame, because you just, you allowed his work to, to take hold of your life. No, that's great stuff, Matthew. And, and again, um, you know, a, a lot of people, I think, and, and somebody listening to this, mm -hmm. don't be afraid to tell your story, mm -hmm. whatever that story is. Um, and, and if you're listening to this, this morning, 
and you're inspired and you're encouraged by the conversation that, that Matthew and I are having. And you said, I've never told the story. Tell it here. Tell mm -hmm. it here on the Intentional Encourager podcast because, you know, again, stories help people and they connect people to, to one. One, they connect people one to another. And yeah. two, it's likely the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. So likely someone else has walked the same road or a similar path that you mm. walked yourself. Yep. And, and so there's nothing, you know, you know, nobody, you know, you don't understand what I've gone through. Well, well, there, there might be somebody out there that goes, I understand perfectly what you've gone through Amen. because they've walked that themselves. Let's step aside, take a break. When we come back. I want to get into your story because mm -hmm. you and I were talking about it a little bit before we started recording. Yeah. And Folks, you're going to want to hear Matthew's powerful story. Back in just a moment here on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Hey, everybody, Brian Sexton. want to tell you about my new book, People Buy From People, 10 Powerful People Lessons from the Ultimate People Person, my dad. My dad was one of the greatest connectors that I ever knew. And he shared with me 10 connecting principles that I have used throughout my 25-year sales and sales management, customer engagement, and leadership career that I'm passing along to you. If you want to be a stronger, deeper, and more powerful connector, you've got to pick up a copy of People Buy From People. There are concepts in there that you may not realize help make you a power connector. You can go to Amazon and pick it up, Kindle if you're an e-reader and you like to do it that way, or now available on Audible. And there's one other way you can get a copy of People Buy From People. You can get one from me and I'll sign it for you. You go to intentionalmediaandpublishing at gmail.com and send me an email. And I'll share with you the link on how you can get a signed copy. You can buy a signed copy directly from me. Again, people buy from people. If you want to connect like never before, pick up your copy today of people buy from people. And now let's get back to more great conversation here on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Matthew, let's dive into your story. And, and again, as you know, this is the part of the podcast where we talk about your journey. Yeah. And so go from as far back as you want to go. And, and people will tell me when I'm on podcasts, they'll say, well, well, you know, take me through your journey. And I'll say, well, it all started in 1971 when two people <laughs> fell in love and then, you know, they had a baby boy in August of night. If you want to go that far, God bless you, go that far. But yeah. take me as far back as you want to go and kind of tell your story and, and, and your journey from there to here. Yeah. So let's go back to like my early adolescence um, because that was when uh, the introduction to my mental health journey, you know, that's when it began. I started experiencing obsessive compulsive thoughts and they overwhelmed me at that period in my life. And I felt that I owned responsibility for those thoughts. I now believe, and, and this can be read in my book, that um, those thoughts were coming from an outside influence from who I believe to be the father of all lies. Um, but I accepted responsibility for them, and I felt a lot of shame and guilt for them. I often would actually, um, and I, you know, I didn't have a close relationship with God at that point in my life, but I would often pray and say, you know, I'm sorry 
Um, I, I don't know why I'm thinking or feeling these things, but you know, it's, it's really something I don't want here. But I often um, began in that stage of my life to start adapting my behaviors to accommodate those thoughts. I was sort of uh, in submission to them, and I felt so much shame about them that I didn't want them to become visible on the surface. So I did everything in my power to adapt um, my behaviors in a way to accommodate them, but not allow them to, you know, surface so that my family could see them or my friends or, or my classmates could see them. So that led to a lot of pressure, you know, this pressure to conceal really overwhelmed me. And that's when I started to experience anxiety. Now for several years, I didn't know what anxiety was, um, but it came, you know, into my life really full force about uh, this, it was the summer before my sophomore year in college. I had moved across the country. Um, my family, I, I grew up in uh, southeastern Pennsylvania, and I actually moved um, to Huntington Beach, California, where I was pursuing a college football um, path. And the summer before my sophomore year, I had an experience that really opened the door to some extraordinary anxiety. Um, and that's when I began to know uh, panic disorder and it started disrupting my day in a profound way. Not Let only me, the Matthew, go I got I got to ask you something Could, yeah. be, because I, I am very sports proficient. So mm -hmm. I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask this yeah. in this way. When you pursue and, and I'm just jotting down a couple of quick notes here. When you yeah. pursue playing college football yeah you realize that one you're a lot different from the average high school football player mm. because 85 percent of high school and it might be a little high mm -hmm. but there are a vast percentage of kids that play high school football that never go on to play at the collegiate level right right and and it even dwindles down even more when you think about the guys that actually go on to play in the nfl yeah you know, yep. it, it's totally. an even smaller. It's, a, it's a minute percentage that ever get to that level. Yeah. It, exactly. You you are dealing with this anxiety, but how mm -hmm. were you able from from high school? Because you have to be regimented mm -hmm. to to a large degree to play football. You have to yeah. be in the weight room. You and, have to yep. you have to study film, and, yep. then, and then there's Friday night, and then you get you kind of get Saturday, and sometimes you get Sunday off. But then you're right back at it on Monday where you're, you know, you've got school and then you got practice and then you come home and you do homework and then yeah. everything leads up, you know, from September to November, it leads up to Friday night. Yep. Totally. And, and, and so now you, you're, you're off to, and, and by the way, you growing up in Southeastern Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. Pennsylvania, for those that don't know, is a football crazy state. Mm-hmm. It is, yeah. And so, did you grow up a Penn State fan? Were, were, I did you, not. What, I did so, not. And so let me what, tell you what. Yeah. My, my father, um, he played college football at the University of North Carolina, which is actually where I wound up getting my degree um, after transferring back east. But, um, yeah, he played at UNC in the 1960s, late 1960s. And he did not have a liking for Penn State because that was actually his dream school. Uh, while he was in high school, and they did not recruit him, so he did get a scholarship offer from from UNC Chapel Hill, and he took it. And so, 
so you know, how did that shape you? So so having yeah. a dad that that played collegiately, mm-hmm. did your dad coach you it through did. through school and things like that? Did did that? How were you able to conceal your anxiety mm-hmm. issues from your mm-hmm. dad, who's also your coach, who's also who went on to play college football? And yeah. what what position did you play in high school? I was a quarterback. Yeah. So See, and again, the, the most, most pressure position, right. The, the yeah. most pressure packed yeah. position yeah. on the field yeah. is the quarterback position. And, and so how were you able through high school yeah. to get yourself in a position to be able to go on and play collegiately? Because mm. you have to have everything together. Like if you make a, mm. if you make a bad throw, Mm-hmm. Okay, it's next. Everybody's next, next play, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and you're dealing with anxiety anyway. Yeah, yeah. And well, and so, how did you how did you compartmentalize it on Friday nights, or how did you compartmentalize it through the week? Because you just said a minute ago you were like, I got really good at hiding it, mm-hmm. and there are times. And, and forgive me for the long winded question, but there are no, times okay. on the football field where even as good as you can hide emotions, they come out in, in the midst of a, of a tense situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, at that stage in my life, like in in those high school years, I really didn't know I had anxiety. Um, You know, I did, I was aware of the battle I was fighting with my thought life and the OCD. I had experiences where I would kind of have like the adrenaline of anxiety and um, there was actually a point in time where I, I made myself sick. I actually thought that I had mono and I had to miss a game on a Friday night as a result of anxiety. I got tested and there was no, did your OCD, let me ask you this. Did your yeah. OCD drive you to, to try to be perfect on the football yep. field? Because yep. Yep. I can imagine in <laughs> there. That's it. And the reason that I asked the question is mm-hmm. the mind of a quarterback, especially those that play at a high level. If you play Division I college football mm-hmm. or you go on to play in the NFL, you have yep. to be very detail-oriented to get yep. to that level. You have to almost be obsessed with game precision. film and breaking yep. down precision. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You you have to be calm in the midst of chaos because your decision-making has to be so quick. At the NFL level, you literally have a second and a half, maybe two seconds, to decide mm-hmm. where the ball is going. And I was yep. talking with, with this – to, with somebody the other day about progressions and, and really being, mm. you mentioned precision, but it's really scanning in a, in such a quick manner that you have to, you have to know in, in literally split seconds where things are going to happen Absolutely. and how yeah. things are going to happen. Yep. As you, as you think about having OCD and things like that, did it heighten your decision-making skills on the field or did you find yourself at times going, Oh man, I what do I do now in this situation? How do I get the ball where I need to go yeah. or or things like that? Yeah, well, so in high school, you know, I excelled. I was like a three-year starter and I broke, you know, school records, two county records even when I was in high school. And um a lot of it there, I, I loved the football environment because it was a place where I could sort of escape. You know, you could go kind of get lost in the game on Friday nights. And in high school, you're relying a lot on your own just natural talent. And I mean, don't get me wrong, I was an extraordinarily hard worker and I was really obsessed with perfecting my craft, but it didn't overwhelm me as much until so when it all started to, you know, kind of get into my head a little bit, 
I was getting a lot of recruiting interest, um, you know, my sophomore and junior years. And I had, I guess, you know, like the summer before my, my senior year, I guess my junior year, I went up and did a visit at Boston College. Um, I visited at um, Pittsburgh. I visited Miami for a camp. I was um, asked to come to Purdue. And that was at the time of like the Drew Brees years and, and spread offense was just coming into, you know, fruition. Um, I was invited to a, like a top 100 quarterback camp at Purdue. And so, th you know, that was truly like my dream. I wanted to play division one college football and seeing it all kind of come together was, was just amazing. You know, having that interest, it was, it was overwhelming. And then um, as I got closer into my, closer to my senior year and, and, um, you know, I really wasn't at the time they were looking to recruit quarterbacks that were like six, four, six, five, kind of the pro style quarterback. And I was, you know, five eleven, maybe six feet tall. So I think, you know, some of the early interest was kind of seeing how I would grow and, and, um, would I kind of meet the standard as I got closer to my senior year. And so yeah. some of the big time interest started to diminish and I had like the division two and um, you know, some of the one double a, which is now FCS and division three, tons of those kinds of uh, offers and interest, but I really just never wanted to pursue it. I never gave it any time. Cause my dream was to go, you know, division one play big time college football. And so ultimately I decided I had, a couple of preferred walk-on uh, invites like Kentucky was one, um, UNC Chapel Hill, Auburn, they all, you know, extended the preferred invite offer, but I, I wanted the scholarship. You know, I wanted to, yeah. I wanted big time, right. I knew I wasn't going to see the field if I was just a walk-on or it wasn't likely. So that's when I went the junior college route. Um, I started researching and I thought I was actually done with football. Um, at the end of my senior year, because I was obsessing in my mind over doing everything perfect. Cause I felt so much pressure to do that in order to, you know, get recruited. And it started to become more like uh, a job than it was a fun experience of, you know, freedom. And, you know, I, I really didn't have the same joy for it as I did, you know, when I started. And so, um, as it got to the tail end of my senior year, I thought I'm done with football. And then by spring, I kind of decided I wanted to give it another shot. And that's when I started investigating junior college football uh, mission conference in California is like the strongest, you know, programs in that space. And they put a ton of guys into division one schools. And so I went out there uh, to golden West college and it didn't take long. Um, it was the summer before my freshman season, we were in workouts and I, you talk about, you know, being so precise and the timing I was, I was adapting to a new level of speed yeah. in that environment. There were guys that were running much faster routes than I was accustomed to in high school. It was like, I could throw the ball when the guy was coming out of his break in high school. And I had such a strong arm that I could get it there in, you know, advance of the defender um, approaching, but in college, it's like, you have to anticipate everything. You've got to make the throw. You've got to put it in a spot long before the guy even comes out of his break and the timing is so precise that I just started to like beat myself up. You know, well, when I was you, like, let, let, let me give it. you, yeah, Matthew, let me give you a little bit of perspective there. Let, let's, let's throw a little color around that. Yeah. 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 When you play high school football, for those that are listening that you say, what, what does this have to do with anything? Mm -hmm. Here's, here, here <laughs> it is, does actually have a lot to do with my story. So well, it's, it's, no, he, well, and it has a lot to do with life. And, and this yeah. is why I wanted to jump in there. 
when when you're playing high school football and you're a quarterback, yeah. and it, you know, and this was the way it was when I was growing up thirty plus years ago. More teams were run heavy than pass mm -hmm. heavy. Yep, it it shifted, and 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 of course now you mentioned the spread offense. So yep. the difference between high school and college, to your point about you know getting the ball there and and things like that. Now what you have to do is to be successful at the college level. In high school, you could wait a half a second to a second to throw the ball. Yep. You have to adjust to the mental capacity of throwing it early. Yep. And a tenth of a second or or three tenths of a second is is an eternity. Exactly. It, it's it's the gap. And, and it's the split. And, and a lot of times, whether in business or leadership or ministry or things like that, when you go to the next level, things speed up. And so that's mm -hmm. why I wanted to, to, yeah. to park on that for just a minute, because the application is there. Yeah. Because if you're behind the anticipation, mm -hmm. when things begin speeding up, it starts to really show. And I can, I can sense, and I can see the mental picture in my mind. Mm-hmm of you being in practice and, and going, okay, this is the way I always do it. And the ball's behind the guy or gets picked yep. off or it's an incompletion. Yeah. You're doing yep. this. You're like, that's a throw I've made 800,000 times yep. and completed the pass. And it, and it, now it's a different level. You said it started to work on you mentally before your sophomore year. Let's jump back to, to yeah. go to that point. Yeah. Take me through what happened beginning of your sophomore year out at, at, at Golden West in California. Yeah, well, so I'll tell you, uh, I didn't make it to the football team even my freshman year. That first uh, summer was too much, and I just got overwhelmed. I felt like, uh, and it's the first time in my life that I ever quit on anything, and I quit on the game that was like the nearest and dearest thing to my heart. Um but that was really, and I didn't know it was anxiety at the time. I just, I blamed it on everything else, of course, um, like we do as teenagers. Um, but I stepped away because, and, you know, I was living in Southern California and I was going to school out there and it was beautiful. And there was a beach close by and there were lots of excuses as to why I didn't need to play football and I could, you know, just enjoy life and go to school. And so I stepped away from it. Um, and that was devastating because it, it really, um, you know, I, I feel like I let down my father a little bit, you know, and obviously it wasn't uh, me living his dream for my life. It was me living my own dream, but, you know, we had committed so much time and energy to it and they had, they had supported me in journeying all the way across the country. My parents had to, um, you know, explore this dream. And now here I am turning my back on it, you know, in the first few months that I'm out there. So Fast forward, you know, uh, I experienced my freshman year of college. It goes very well. I'm committed uh, from an education standpoint to, you know, excelling in the classroom. And I have a great group of friends out there, um, you know, heading into my sophomore year. It was the summer uh, before my sophomore year. I had a friend from Pennsylvania come out and visit for a week. And we, one night, we didn't have a lot to do. And we decided to experiment with some California, um, marijuana. And it was, uh, what we got, we got from a stranger and we were not aware that 
it was laced with PCP. And so, you know, through this experimentation, I had a very paranoid experience and it was just a awful night. One of the worst nights of my life. And when I woke up the next morning, it was like the paranoia wasn't gone. Like the high was still there and I couldn't get rid of it. And really what I came to understand was that this was like the flooding of my being with this uh, anxiety and panic disorder. It wasn't the high anymore. It was actually like the adrenaline. And I felt like it was a high, but it was truly like the anxiety and panic. And then that took over my life. And I, for the first time, you know, being 3000 or so miles away from home, I started to think like, wow, I really am alone out here. I mean, I've got some friends, but holy cow, if anything happens to me, you know, I can't just have my family be here in an instant. They have to get on a six-hour flight to get here. And that was the moment of that, expo- was, that was the moment of exposure that you talked about a few yep. minutes ago, yep. where you had been burying all of this stuff and, yep. and 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 tailoring your lifestyle to where it wouldn't surface. Yep. And then in in an instant, in one night, everything just not only well, comes to the surface, but it just pours out. Yep. Took over my life. And, um, I fought it in my own strength for a while. It took time to wrap my head around what I was dealing with. Like I, you know, I did a lot of research in my, uh, apartment that I was living in at that time, like trying to understand what anxiety was. I mean, I thought like I was going crazy and then I started to, you know, read some things and, and hear some stories of other people's experiences. And it at least gave me the comfort that I wasn't alone, which was important. And, you know, I started making a lot of phone calls to my father who was my best friend. And I just uh, confided in him and, you know, he was very patient with me and I'm sure it was extraordinarily hard being so far away and knowing he couldn't help me, but he was helping me. He was truly saving my life because he was allowing me to kind of talk about my experiences and have, you know, kind of a shoulder to cry on and allow me to like, have the space to understand what I was dealing with. Cause the more I talked about it, the more I could like wrap my head around what it was and how I needed to approach it to, to manage my life moving forward. But I couldn't last there long. I stayed for a semester, another semester. Um, so I was kind of halfway through my sophomore year of school. And then I decided to actually move home and uh, I went back to Pennsylvania for a semester, um, kind of got things back in order, went to a community college out there, and then ultimately um, applied to UNC and, and got in. And I transferred there for the last two years of uh, my college career and had a great experience. But um, the anxiety wasn't gone. And then after that, I went through many seasons of it. Um, I had my overall, I had improved but I was still dealing with it on a daily basis. And I had to be very careful about how I managed things. Some, you know, it was kind of like uh, peaks and valleys. I never can, truly healed because I never got to the root of it all. No. Can I ask you one more question around that? And, and then we'll, mm-hmm. yeah, I want to, I want to go there where you, where you're taking us. Yeah. You get to the university of North Carolina. Yeah. And your dad plays football there. Mm-hmm. Were there a lot of people that came up to you and said, man, I remember your dad. I remember when he played down here, things like that. Was it, was it for you? You're working through these issues. You decide to go where your dad went to school. Yeah. Was it, was it hard for you to go there? Was it an easy decision? What was it like for you to decide to go to UNC? And did you kind of have to live with the ghost of your dad's past there as a football player? 
Um, you know what? I really didn't. My dad had uh, his career actually end his sophomore year of college because they thought he had a heart issue. And so, oh, wow. okay. uh, yeah, it was actually what they would probably diagnose now as exercise induced asthma, but, um, he, he, you know, his football career ended, he stayed on scholarship and he was essentially like a graduate assistant, you know, that, that type of role, but he was still in school as an undergraduate, um, for those last two years of, of college. So, you know, not, my dad wasn't, you know, um, the guy, you know, breaking records or anything like that. Not a lot of people necessarily knew of his football career there because it ended so quickly. He did play baseball at UNC Chapel Hill, though, too. I'll tell you that. Um, and they've got a phenomenal baseball program great, there at UNC. Yeah, fantastic. So I wasn't really living in, you know, the, the ghost of the past. But um, I will say the reason that Chapel Hill probably became – the place where I, where I landed is because it was like a second home to me, you know? And I think there was a lot of comfort in that. I had to leave um, that space in California and come back home. That's where I healed. That's where I thought I had healed anyway, uh, temporarily healed perhaps. And, uh, you know, got back on my feet. And I think you like Chapel Hill was sort of the next natural progression because it had been some place that was close to my family. And actually my sister was, um, she was at the time working at UNC Chapel Hill because she had done graduate school there. She went to the University of Notre Dame undergrad and then went to Chapel Hill and was uh, in their sports administration program. And so she was working in the athletic department there um, at the time when I went down to school. So there was like that, you know, uh, family aspect close by. And so if I was going to kind of, you know, leave the nest again, it, it seemed like a logical place, Safe to, place go. to land. Yeah. 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 So take me through when, when things started resurfacing again, you, yeah. you, you feel like you're getting healed. Yeah. You, you come home and then you go, okay, let's try this again. You, you, you go to UNC in yeah. Chapel Hill trying to reestablish life for yourself. Yep. Take me through the moments where these things started to resurface themselves. Yeah. So, I mean, I was constantly like fighting that battle to conceal and it was affecting, you know, relationships that I was in um, because, you know, I, I got very good at like controlling or manipulating my environment to uh, accommodate what was going on um, beneath the surface of my skin. I worked very hard at that and that was taxing on other people, you know, because if I didn't have things uh, the, the perfect way, if I didn't have the right setup. If, um, you know, something came in unexpectedly that I wasn't anticipating, then, you know, I reacted very emotionally to that because I wanted things all kind of in their proper place. That's sort of the product of OCD and, and anxiety. And, um, you know, I went through a couple really tough breakups, um, and that was hard. And I, I kind of felt like a victim in that space. And then I had a relationship in 2011 that ended and it, it wasn't a good, you know, like the, the final six months or so of that relationship were very stressful. And I was um, feeling the anxiety building underneath my skin, but I was, you know, just, you know, doing my best to swallow it, suppress it. I knew that I was kind of um, really flirting with disaster. And we had an argument uh, one night when we were coming actually back home from a Super Bowl party. We were in the car. And in the midst of that argument, I just got 
overwhelmed by this feeling of panic. And I was thinking, I'm, I'm truly going to have a panic attack here. So I told her I need to pull the vehicle over and like take a deep breath. And so I pulled the car over and I stepped out. And what overcame me in that moment was so far beyond what I had known in my past as a panic attack. It was truly like a nervous breakdown experience. I mean, my body just shook um, for like 40 or 45 minutes. I could not, I could barely, you know, stand or walk. I could not put a sentence together. It was, it was awful. And I truly in that space thought that I was never going to come back from it. Um, I, it, it was like I had lost my mind. Um, that's, that's how it felt. And I thought, you know, I'm never going to snap out of this. Like they're going to have to take me to the hospital and lock me up in a padded room. I mean, I didn't know. It just felt like the end. Um, eventually it did pass and our relationship ended about a week or two later, but then what came into my life that in 2011 was just, uh, this incredible season of very, very intense, persistent anxiety and panic. Um, it got so bad that I actually became agoraphobic and a lot of the agoraphobia and agoraphobia for those who don't know is kind of a fear of outside spaces, I think is how it's defined, but it's really like just this fear of leaving your comfort zone. And so I had established that comfort zone in my one bed, one bath apartment. And I really kind of resigned to living in that space. And, um, you know, I, I became very fearful about outside spaces in the sense that if I was out in public, I thought that I was potentially vulnerable to a really bad attack that would lead to a nervous breakdown and it would become visible to everyone around me. They throw me, you know, in the hospital and I'd lose my ability to, to live my life the way that I desired. So again, it was like this pressure to conceal, um, this desire to not allow it to become publicly visible. And, um, you know, the walls really just started closing in on me and I became captive um, to that environment that I was living in. And then um, by the grace of God, I had this experience. So I had created a few vices in my life to kind of deal with the chaos of my racing mind. And they were like escape routes for me where I could, I could go to these places and, and just you know get away from the anxious thoughts for at least a period of time. One of them was I like to to gamble. Um, and I would bet on sports. I would wager in like online casinos. That was something I could do from the convenience of, of my one bedroom, one bath apartment. And one day I was just feeling so much anxiety. It was like a Saturday and there, it was not a busy season in the sports world. There was really nothing going on. It was in the summertime and there was a women's soccer match that was taking place U S and, and I can't even remember the other country. Um, I knew nothing about soccer, but I just wanted to place a bet. I wanted to like escape for a few hours. And so I did that. And um, the event was not turning favorable for me. It was actually looking pretty bleak. I could see that I was going to lose that money. I got angry. I yelled something completely out of character in my apartment and I slapped the screen of my laptop, which shattered it. And I thought, Oh my goodness. Like, what am I going to do now? I've cut off my access to the online casino, to my ability to wager on sports. Like, how am I going to deal with my mind without my laptop? You know, I've got to go get a new one. So I muscled up the, the courage to go over to Best Buy. And that, this was a big feat for me because at this point in my life, I was struggling to go to like the, the trash chute or the mailbox, but again, to serve like that addiction that had, you know, taken root. 
I went and I did it and I was shaking uncontrollably as I walked throughout the store. I checked out, came back out to the parking lot. And that's when I had this divine intervention. A man came up to me and he kind of raced up to me actually, as I was walking towards my car. And he said, do I look like a blank to you? And I won't use the term, but it was the, it was a very specific term that I had actually used in the privacy of my apartment um, a couple hours earlier in that anger. And I yelled out because the outcome wasn't, you know, going in my favor when I, when I yelled out and, you know, said something that was very uncharacteristic of, of who I was as a person, it kind of, it was a dark uh, slur. Let's say that. And he, he came right up to me in the parking lot and said, do I look like this to you? And he said it over and over again. And I thought, what is, what is going on with this guy? Like, this is, this is bizarre. Like I haven't, I, I, I don't know him. I, I didn't encounter him. I didn't bump into him with my vehicle or anything like what's going on. I got in my car and then it just, um, the conviction washed over me. I knew that it was God talking to me and it was really kind of revealing to me how far I had fallen. Like, look at, look at what you're doing, you know, like look at what you've become. And at that point I, I knew that that was God. And I, I felt as though I didn't want anything to do with um, gambling anymore. I really didn't want the laptop. I went home, cleaned out the account, um, stepped into the shower and in the shower, I just, uh, I started praying or talking to God. I don't know that I was truly in prayer because my relationship wasn't that well established at that point. But I said, um, you know, what is, what is the one consistent thing? Like this thought came over me, like, what is the one consistent thing in your life? You know, you've had financial hardships, you've had these bad breakups, you've gone through all these adversities, but what's the consistent thing in all of them? And it just was very clear. It was me. You know, I was the willing participant. I chose to be in those situations. Like, stop blaming everybody else for the outcomes in your life. And, you know, seek forgiveness, uh, own your story, and, and come home, you know? And I felt him nudge me in that moment to share my experiences, to stop concealing, to put, you know, the lamp on the stand, if you will. And um, the next day I started a blog. And so that's how I got you know, here, it, it's been a journey since that time, but that's really how I began writing and feeling led to a God inspired mission. Wow. Just wow. I mean, <laughs> thank you for being so transparent and in, in things. Sure. And I've got to ask you this. I feel like now is the right time Yeah. for you to share with this audience, your biggest piece of intentional encouragement, because I can, uh, folks, if you have walked that road mm -hmm. of anxiety and fear, you understand it well. Mm -hmm. Maybe some of you are walking it now that listening to this podcast. Yeah. Share, Matthew, share with this, this audience your biggest piece of intentional encouragement. Oh, there's a lot I could probably say, but I think what it all boils down to is um, – you know, giving God your life. because So even after he intervened at that period, it was like July of 2011 when I had that experience. I started telling the story, but things weren't necessarily just, uh, you know, improving. It's not like he flipped a switch and, you know, everything was better. 
it wasn't that way. I was still experiencing a lot of anxiety. I was still dealing with the agoraphobia and that actually kind of intensified over the months that followed, even as I began to share, but I was getting a lot of clarity. I was making sense of what I had been through. I was finding purpose and meaning, and I was starting to trust him. Like we were, we were becoming well aligned, although I still wanted to do things a lot in my own strength. I was kind of thinking that my will would, would sort of prevail. It got to the point though, where I realized that I was becoming exhausted. Um, I, I wasn't sleeping well because of the anxiety. I had done everything in my own strength to fight this battle and I was depleted. And um, I had an experience in, it was on Thanksgiving where I, I, because I was agoraphobic, I couldn't spend the day with my family as I always had in the past. And uh, I you know, sat alone in my apartment with like nothing in my refrigerator because I couldn't go to the store. I had like one piece of fruit in the fridge. And I remember I even actually was out of my desperation, got into my car that day to see if there was anything open, like where I could get takeout or drive through food, something, nothing. Um, and I remember how lonely that day was. And I thought, wow, something's got to give. And a few days later, I just fell to my knees and I said, Lord, um, you know, I can't do this anymore in my own strength. Like, I don't want to take my life. I wasn't suicidal because I knew him and I knew he didn't want that for my life, but I didn't see any way out. So I was just, I was ready to die, you know, either take me now or take me and do with me according to your will. And that's when he spoke uh, this affirmation over me, which led me out of the captivity. But I guess what I would say to the listeners is if I can encourage you, God really wants you to put your life into his hands. And I'm here to tell you that miracles unfold when you do that when you just allow yourself to truly step forward in faith and for me it was that type of process inching my way out of captivity it didn't it didn't happen overnight but if i look back on it you know six months down the road i could see that i had lived a miracle and it all started with taking that first step in faith and putting my life in his hands and trusting that he would guide me out of it so you know Try not to be stubborn. I mean, I lived my life in that stubborn resistance, and um, I was essentially beating the air, trying to win what I believe to be a spiritual battle in my flesh. And when I kind of understood who uh, the opponent was or what kind of realm I needed to win this battle in, then I could rely on his strength. It was not my own. Not not my own whatsoever, but that strength could guide me to victory in that realm. And then that could that spiritual imbalance would be fixed. And ultimately the mental imbalance um was restored to, you know, I, I'm in a great place now. It's, it's amazing what I'm doing. And that's all by the grace of God and putting my life in his hands. Man, oh man. Such a deep, powerful conversation. And again, folks, thank you for staying with it because. It's important a lot of times, and, and we, I don't apologize for the length of the podcast because I want you to get the full experience as though Matthew is talking to you directly or whoever is on the podcast is just having this conversation with you. So, Matthew, thank you for being so transparent, You're sharing welcome. your story. Tell folks how they can connect with you and where they can find the, the book, The Devil and the Children of God at the End of the World. 
Yeah, so you can find me um, and and the lamp on the stand. And I, I will be clear, I'm not a, a pastor of a church, but I am a, a minister of the faith. I'm an evangelist, and I love to share my story to lead um, you know, those who are seeking to, to freedom from this captivity, whether it's a mental health journey, whether it's a, a spiritual journey um, exclusively. Uh, but you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm very active there. I do a lot of content on LinkedIn. Um, and you can find me at lamponthestand.com. That is my website. There's a lot of resources there. I also have a Facebook page for the Lamp on the Stand Motivational Ministry, and we um, share a lot of content there. We do nightly scripture. So if you're seeking to learn uh, more about God and grow in your faith, that's a great place to find us um, as well. So I'm just excited to be able to share the story and i thank you for your patience it's a long one. Oh, and as far as the book is concerned you can find it on amazon um it is available in kindle paperback and hardcover and you can also check out his podcast delivering dunamis yes. which is the greek word for dynamite so yes. again um and and he and i will be sharing my story on on an upcoming episode of that podcast and so uh, check that out when it releases. But Matthew Dibler, what a powerful, powerful conversation. And thank you again for sharing your story with us on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Absolutely. I appreciate you having me. Thank you so much. My thanks as always to producer Bryce Sexton and technical advisor Matt Means. And of course, the ultimate thanks goes to the Lord Jesus Christ, who provides intentional encouragement every day through his word. If you're not subscribed to the Intentional Encourager podcast, hit the subscribe button wherever you get podcasts so you don't miss an exciting episode where you can get encouraged and stay encouraged. And remember, anyone, anywhere, at any time, any place can be an intentional encourager. <laughs>